So this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 46, Genesis 46. We are kind of on the, the denouement of the story of Joseph. That's the uh, downward slide from the climax. Uh, we were all moving towards the, the mountain peak, and now we're coming down the other side, and the family's getting, going to be reunited here. And uh, this is a, a joyful reunion that we see here uh, in this text. And chapter 46 uh, has a, kind of a large middle section. And in the large middle section, um, it's a, kind of like a genealogy. And so I'm not going to go into all of that. I'm going to be thinking of like the bookend paragraphs uh, that hold this chapter together. And there is a beautiful, um, I think a really helpful understanding of the joy that can be ours when we contemplate the presence of the everlasting God. Um, I am way outside of my, uh, my, my manuscript introduction here, but uh, I'm very thankful that uh, this text is here. It might not seem like a great text to preach from, but there is a lot of rich truth here uh, behind the scenes, and I hope I can share this with you adequately uh, this morning. Um, but before I do, let's uh, pray, and I'm going to pray for Dan Headwood this morning. I, I was intending to do so last Sunday, and for some reason I went on ahead of myself. But uh, Dan pastors the uh, Canaan Bible Chapel and uh, a sister church to us here in the community, and we'd like to uh, pray for him in his faithfulness to the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the rich truth that is ours in the Scriptures. As we look into these words, may we, we become more acquainted with your character and, and who you are. Help us to um, really to become overwhelmed with the, the beauty of your presence, that we would experience fullness of joy. And uh, I thank you that you have examples in Scripture of people that you have not given up on, that you have been persistent in your love and care for their souls, and uh, you have brought them to a place of eternal joy. And so in that, we can see hope for ourselves, as we would be honest with ourselves of how needy and how desperate we are. Um, the hope that we have of eternal life, of eternal joy is ours. So as we look at this text, give me wisdom, and I know that uh, Dan will be speaking in his congregation this morning. I ask that you would fill him with the words that you would have him to say. May his, uh, may his delivery and everything um, bring out the glories that are in the Word of God this morning. And so just I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your free spirit that you give to be able to accomplish what you desire. In your name we pray, amen. So, in this text, I see a joyful reunion, and as I think about a joyful reunion, I think of other reunions that I have seen uh, through life situation or in stories that I have read. Uh, this spring, the tabernacle hosted the viewing of Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, I just want to do a quick survey. Who has seen or read or is acquainted with the Pilgrim's Progress. Could you raise your hand just so that I have a 
quick. Okay, so I'm not talking into a vacuum here. People understand the story of Pilgrim generally. Um, It's the allegory of the Christian life, and Christian leaves the city of destruction, and some of us might think that the climax is actually the cross. And the cross is centrally important, but the climax actually comes when he crosses the river and enters into the celestial city. And uh, what makes that moment so spectacular is that he has gone through so many trials. Um, He has moved through the swamp and gone through the wicked gate. He's uh, avoided the adversary's arrows. He's He's escaped bad company. He's gone through the valley of the shadow and he's fought Apollyon and he has um, gone through the Vanity Fair city. He's gone through um, the dungeon of despair and come been delivered. And so when he gets to to the river, he nearly drowns in the river for fear. But he makes it to the other side. And when he gets to the other side, there's such a beautiful description of the reunion that they experience. And I want to read some of Bunyan's words. Imagine with me the joy that will one day be ours like Christians. Bunyan says, Now I saw in my dream that these two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. There were also that met them with harps and crowns and gave to them the harps to praise withal and the crowns in token of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang for joy and that it was said unto them, Enter ye into the joy of the Lord. I also heard the men say to themselves and they sang with a loud voice saying, Blessing and Honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, just as the gates were opened to let the men in, I looked in after them, and behold, the city shone like the sun. The streets were paved with gold, and in them walked many men with crowns on their heads, palms in their hands, and golden harps to sing praises withal. There were also of them that had wings, and they answered one another without intermission, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. After that, they shut up the gates, and when I had seen, I wished myself among them. Do you wish yourself among them? Do you wish, can you visualize the entrance into the majestic city? Can you see that? You know, imagination is a very powerful tool that the Lord gives us to help us anticipate. Anticipate the glory and the joy that we will experience. I think we're acquainted with the imagination and anticipation. Those of us who have had the joy to be new parents or um, grandparents looking in and you anticipate for nine months something that's going to bring great joy to your family. And when a person in a similar way is born again, do you know you've been given capacity by the Holy Spirit to love someone who you've never seen before? 
unless you were in the first century, you, you're the unique one who has seen Jesus Christ for who he really is. But the Holy Spirit gives to us the gift of ability to anticipate and, and look forward to relationship with Jesus Christ. A person who is not born again, though, cannot relate to this joy. It cannot relate to this joy. Now, we're going to be going into a text here where Jacob had been given up on all hope of seeing his son again. And all of a sudden, the reality of his son is put before him, and he begins to imagine what it will be like to be reunited with his boy, who he's not seen. A person who is, in a similar way, born again, we have been given. We have been given the capacity to anticipate reunion with the one who made us. And uh, as I was also thinking about this text, and we are going to get to the text, believe it or not, but this text uh, reminds me of uh, a pastor who talked about having joy in this life while we are not in the presence of fullness of joy yet, and how that Christians can have a contentment, an internal joy that kind of moves them through life. Um, pastor Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs, I wanted to say Jeremy Burroughs, I work with a Jeremy, Jeremy or Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan pastor, he wrote this book called Christian Contentment, uh, The Jewel and How to Receive It and How to Own It. I recommend the book, and uh, he says this, that a Christian who has learned contentment is the most contented man in the world, and yet the un- most unsatisfied man in the world. Because we are anticipating reunion with God. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy that cannot be explained to to people who don't have a spiritual aptitude and taste for God. And uh, it's a unique thing. A person who is truly born again really cannot be satisfied with anything else. They need the joy of God. They have the joy of God. And this is where true blessing resides. I asked Jared to read the Beatitudes and the blessings. The blessings reside in the presence of God, and the fruit of the Spirit that flows out of those blessings can only come to someone who has been born again. And in this text, I want us to see that in the everlasting God's presence, that's where we find fullness of joy. This life will not provide for us the fullness of joy that we desire. That can only be experienced in the presence of God. And when our imagination is filled with the awareness of the everlasting God, that's when we're going to experience real joy. That happens in worship. In the first paragraph of this text, Jacob goes to a place where he experiences the presence of the living God, the everlasting God, and he finds peace and contentment and joy. He goes back to the place where his fathers have encountered the living God. And on the end of this text, we see 
Jacob and his brothers living a life that's in the presence of God, and they experience great joy as well. So let's turn to verse 1 of chapter 46 and look at the first seven verses, and I want us to see this principle is that joy is ours when our worship admits that God is very present. Let's read the verses. So Israel, that is Jacob's uh, given name by God, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father with their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So they take up the tent pegs lift and they go off to Beersheba on the way to Egypt. When Jacob arrives in Egypt, he actually must have looked pretty rough because Pharaoh asked him how old he was. Uh, we I am getting ahead a little bit, but it's important for us to see this. Flip over to chapter 47 in verse 9. Pharaoh asks um, how old Jacob is. I imagine he must have looked pretty rough. For, otherwise, you don't typically ask a person's age. Uh, and Jacob replied, The days of the years of my sojourn are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He's very transparent. Most of his life has not been roses. It's been a difficult existence. In fact, most of Jacob's life has been lived as if God was not present. And it shows. I mean, obviously, everything's going to show at 130. But stress, anger, despair, discouragement take a toll on our bodies. You ever see a photo of a president who, uh, before he takes office and how after he takes office? They look like they age like 60 years. And there is a reality that when when we don't handle our stress well, it takes an effect upon our life. Think of what Jacob's life might have been if he had more consistently 
filled his soul with the awareness of who God is. I mean, maybe he might not have been spared all the sorrows that he experienced, but what might he have been able to say to Pharaoh when he stood before him? He could have said something like this, I have had a difficult life, but God has been my rock and my salvation. And it leads me to ask, well, how is it that one becomes more aware of God's presence? And this is what I see in chapter 46. In the moment of worship there with uh, Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob, contemplating his past, talking to the eternal God in worship, and I see, first of all, that God's presence is known through history. Through history. Now, how do I see that? Well, I see that he's returning to the place where his fathers have set up an altar and worshipped. He knows the history of this location. He, he's going back to Beersheba where his grandfather and father have encountered the living God. And he knows history. I I, I, I guess this, this point might be a little bit self-serving because I love history. And, uh, but I do know that I'm not the only one in the room that likes history, if not loves history. But Jacob knows his family history. It says that he offered, it says he offered in verse 1, sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, Beersheba was the southernmost point before you leave Canaan and enter into like the desert areas and move off towards Egypt. It was the southernmost location, um, but it's a special place to the family. God's presence was here made known to Abraham and to Isaac, and now it's going to be made known to, to Jacob. Now, Abraham, his grandfather, had made a treaty with with a man by the name of Abimelech who has wealth and power. He was moving into his territory and, and, and the herdsmen were starting to kind of chafe and so he, he, he set up an agreement with them and he planted a tree there in that location. And you know what he called the tree? In Genesis 21, 32 to 33, you can go back there at some point and you can read the, what he called the tree. He called it this. He said, he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That tree was planted to give memorial to the everlasting God. And it's, it's a name that's, that's given here by um, Abraham, and it's also reminding Abraham of the commitment that God has made to him and his family to bless him, his offspring, forever. It is only possible for a promise that's forever in nature to be upheld by a person who is forever in nature. God is the everlasting God that spans all generations. And no doubt, Isaac had heard, or excuse me, Jacob had heard the stories from his own father about how Isaac, his father, had been conceived in miracle. You remember, Abraham and uh, Sarah 
were well beyond the childbearing age. They were like into their upper 90s. I can, at 40, I can't imagine having kids now. Can you imagine having kids at like 100? Oh, but regardless, like it was absolute miracle of God that this occurred within their body. But that's something that only the everlasting God can do. He spans all generations. And so the Lord appeared to um, Isaac at this location. And in Genesis 26, Isaac had been offering sacrifices, and God appeared to him at the same location and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Amazing. Jacob had heard the stories too of how God provided a bride for his father. It looked bleak. The kid couldn't seem to kind of carry a conversation with the girls in town. And so dad has to go and get a bride for him. And uh, he sends his son Eliezer off and he comes back with a bride for for Isaac, and God was faithful in that moment to provide for him. See, the everlasting God does not change. Generations come and go, but he is always the same. I had a conversation this week with um, Paul Bereka, who is the director of Fellowship International Mission, of which I'm a part of as a board member, and uh, we were discussing how the Great Awakening there's been multiple great awakenings within our history here in America. And he was contemplating how that perhaps it's been at least 50 to 60 years since we've had a movement of God's Spirit and maybe even the longest time frame in which we haven't seen God act in a broad scale here in America. Uh, he was referring to the last awakening during the 60s and the 70s during the, the uh, kind of the Woodstock generation in which 30% of that demographic came and embraced Christ. That's pretty significant. But the reality is, I was, we were talking and discussing, is that every generation, God has been faithful to bring people to faith, but he's not obligated to move in hearts in the way he has done in the past. But we can have every confidence that the God who is everlasting is doing a work that we cannot see to bring people to himself, and he continues to do so even as we anticipate and pray for his, his working in people's hearts. So I'd like to encourage you, history and church history, it's important. It's, it's encouraging. It can give us... Um, an understanding of what God has been doing in the past and the realization that we have an everlasting God. Second aspect here that I want us to see here that this is a part of worship. It's, it's admitting that God's presence is real. So we, and we see him in the past, but we also see him as well in his self-revelation. God's presence is known through his self-revelation. Verse 2 See in verse 2 that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. 
And so God is the one who comes to him and reveals to him more about who he is. Throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, we, we see God revealing who he is to his people. And also throughout Scripture, we see time and time again God's people worshiping something other and something that more corresponds to their vain imagination. And rather than focusing on what God has described himself to be, sometimes people will say, well, I like to think of God as, and they fill in the blank. The reality is when we do that, we are following our vain imaginations. God has disclosed to us in his word what he is like so that we might be assured and understand his presence. When someone says to you, God told me, you ought to ask yourself two questions. Does what I'm hearing square with what God has already communicated in his word? Secondly, you ought to ask yourself, if God's word already says it, then why do I need additional revelation? We live in another era that by God's grace, we have the completed word of God that gives us the fullness of what God is like so that we can understand who he is and be assured of his presence with us. We have everything that we know, need to know to, to know God, to worship him, and to live a life of godliness. Beyond that, what more do we need? Well, I know that we do need comfort. I do know that we need consolation. I do know that we need the Holy Spirit to comfort our hearts, to, to give us the assurance that we are following as we ought to follow. And so in the next few verses, worship not only looks like remembering the past, but also appreciating his, God's self-revelation, but it's also God's presence is made known through his Holy Spirit. In verse 3 through 4, we read um, God's explanation of himself, that he is the God of his Father, and not to be afraid, go da- um, you go down to Egypt. And in verse 4, we have the assurance of God's presence. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I don't know if you've been keeping track on Jacob's life, but this is the second time he has left Canaan. The first time he left Canaan, he, he dropped into his... Uh, his corrupt uncle's uh, farm, kind of like his, his used car lot, if you will. And as he fled from Canaan, God had appeared to him in a dream. And when he awoke, he, he worshiped God and he poured oil on the stone and that rock, he called that place Bethel because it was the house of God and his presence. What's unique about this departure from Canaan is that Jacob goes to God first. God doesn't interrupt his night dream and say, hey, tap, 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 guess what? You forgot to talk to me before you go out of this country. Here he is. He's made sacrifices. He's asking for God's blessing. He understands that he needs God's presence. 
And this time he's purposely admitting through worship the need for God's presence. You know, God was with Jacob, even though his uncle was cheating him. What was happening in that moment that God was pruning him? God was shaping him, nudging him. The Holy Spirit had not left him even then. The Holy Spirit was working to craft him and to make him into what he ought to be. And yet, in the business of creating order out of his disordered life, he's now at a better place, and now he's inquiring of God and asking that God's presence go with him. And it is important for us as believers not to run headlong into things that we encounter. We ought to be asking the Lord, just like Jacob, for God's blessing and promise of his, bless- his presence to be with us. But the reality is, is that we cannot escape God's presence, can we? And that's a comfort. We have the Holy Spirit that which has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is ours. It is, he is the comforter to assure us that we have his presence. You know, some of us can take comfort from knowing that we might have a bank account. A bank account that we can go to when we're getting down closer to empty in our actual cash in our pockets. We can go and get some money out of the ATM machine and take comfort in that. But think about it from this vantage point that many of us, when we are going through life and we're experiencing hardship, we may not, we don't have a bank account where we can actually draw comfort from. But the reality is, is that we have been given the comforter who comes to us to give us what we need. A deposit of resources is a treasure. It's comfort, a stash. But the reality of God's presence in the Holy Spirit is is that when we don't have in ourselves the energy and the effort to keep following Christ by faith, you know what we have? We have the comforter who comes to us when we can't get a drink from the water fountain. He comes and gives us water. He imparts to us the assurance that we are the children of God and that nothing can separate us from him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He communes with our hearts. As I said at the beginning of this message, those who have not been born again can't even relate to the possibility of a comfort of that scale. Someone in our Wednesday night Bible study was talking about how that before they had come to Christ, everything was just kind of foolishness. They had saved parents who were communicating to them, and it just, like water off a duck's back, it just didn't make any sense. But as soon as their eyes were opened, they were given the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was palpable. They could tell. They knew that they had been born again. And then that experience, they were given the comforter, the presence of God to be with them always. And Jacob, as a son of Abraham and Isaac, he had been given the promise of the presence of God to go with him wherever he would go. 
And when our, I think it's really helpful for us to realize that when our worship admits this, when we realize that the presence of the living God is around us through church history, through, through the history of even my own upbringing, or we see it through the scriptures and then we see it internally, that does a remarkable job of creating joy in our life. It gives us the, the, um, the, the, the presence of God does a work to change us from the inside out. I think, though, that many of us, we have the opportunity, but we don't pick it up. We can miss the joy of the Lord because we don't take what's available to us each and every day. Many of us, and I know I myself can get into the habit of the first thing I do when I wake up, it's not actually to say, Lord, thank you for your presence, and going to his word and finding him there. What I often will do is turn to Facebook or some other distraction as my day begins. God's presence will not necessarily leave me, but the joy of starting the day with the awareness and presence of the living God is something that we, we have as a privilege. And I would encourage you, if you're in a habit of, of just picking up social media in the morning and just starting with that, to realize you, you may get yourself off on the wrong day out of frustration in life as you see all kinds of garbage happening. The news media cycles, that can be just as bad. We have an everlasting God who spans all the generations. And we ought to be turning to him for our joy and not looking to false joys out there. We desperately need to be unified with the presence of God. That's where joy comes from. So I'd encourage you, pick up the book first, not Facebook. That's not a cute saying, I don't know. But whatever it is, get with the word, get with the Lord first. He will not disappoint you and he will give you the joy that you're looking for. In this text, and I'm ready now to move to the last half of the text, is it's important for us to realize that our joy comes, yes, out of the worship of the, pre- of, of the living God, but joy is ours also when our lifestyle aligns with God's holy presence. Let's look at verse 28 to 34. On the other side of the genealogy, uh, just a word about the genealogy, um, it's a record of the head of households, and it's tabulated to be about 70 persons. And uh, that's the head of household count. But really, this would reflect probably about 250 to 300 people going down to Egypt at this time. And so this is also in, in indirectly a validation of God's promises. God had promised to Abraham that he would make a seed, a, a, a seed without number, And this was the start of that. 
before they go into Egypt. God is faithful to keep his promises. And so let's look at verse 28 uh, into the end here of the chapter. Um, He had sent Judah ahead of him, that's Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And when Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my Pharaoh's household who are with me in the land of Canaan come to see me. And the men are shepherds, for they have uh, been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." We need to know and to be reminded that God is holy. He's not warped. He is 100% pure. He is integrity. He is pure honesty. And when our life choices align with God's holy presence, we experience a joy that this world cannot ever know. In this paragraph, we see Joseph's family living honestly for like the first time. They're honestly living before God and men. Judah is sent ahead to coordinate the arrival into Goshen. Joseph sees his father, and all the secrecy of the past is gone. There are tears. Do you notice that there are tears weeping? Joseph weeps and holds on to his father's neck, and it says, and they wept for a long time. These are tears of a different kind. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you look under the microscope and look at tears and how they crystallize, they form different shapes based on what caused the tears. And when tears are shed, God knows if they're crocodile tears or not. He knows when there's genuine transparency. God who knit us together in our mother's womb is intimately aware of the differences between tears of joy and tears of relief and tears of reunion. In fact, the difference that you see on the wall there, you see... Um, on the left side, you see those are tears that come when you peel an onion. And that's the shape that they take. You look on the right side, these are tears actually that were described as tears that came from joyful reunion. There's a looseness to them. There's kind of a, a, a freedom in those. You're not holding back. With to onion tears, what do you do? You hold back. You try to hold back those tears. There's con- tighter con- concentration. But this 
moment here, all the different kinds of tears that they have shed in the past, now these are tears of joy, of reunion, and he wept on his father's neck a good while. Some people have looked at Joseph and wondered, well, Joseph, when you were ruling Egypt, why didn't you ever try to reach out to your family and find out where they are and what they were doing? Why had he not sent word to his family that he had made it? Is it possible that Joseph was not prepared to see his family? Maybe his soul needed to be ready to receive his family. And even while Joseph was testing his family, it probably pained him to keep up the tough guy routine. And I note here that while Joseph was being used of God to test his brothers, God was also working on Joseph. And what's the point here? Well, while he was at the pinnacle of life, he was still living in secrecy. He hadn't reached out to his family. And what I see in this is that honesty and honest living brings, brings rich and great joy to a person. And so we see as the, as the, the family is kind of, quote, negotiating for a place in the land, they present all the cards. They just lay them all out. And Joseph handpicks five of his brothers, probably some of the older ones, maybe, maybe, maybe one's more articulate than the others or whatnot. But he coached them in what to say. They might have been tempted not to lay out all the cards and try to present like, you know, we're not just little shepherds from Canaan, but we're like these, these, these really wealthy, you know, uh, Turks, you know, or whatever. Like, we're, like, we got all this money back home. That's, that's not what was going on here. It's a straightforward presentation. Someone said that honesty is the best policy, but honesty brings joy, and it doesn't warp your body. Living honestly with people brings tremendous joy. I uh, share a little bit of a a humorous illustration here, but uh, a while back there was, um, on Long Island Beach in California, there was a young man who uh, was with a a lady, and they went to... um, pick up some chicken uh, to have at the beach, and they, they went to the restaurant, and when they were waiting for their order, an accident happened. The order, the chicken box got money put into it, and so they were handed the wrong box, and the money came to them instead. And so when they went back to the beach, they started to open up the boxes, and all of a sudden they realized, oh my goodness, we got the day's deposit here. We better take this back. And so the young man goes in, and uh, uh, the manager was, relate, was so excited over what was happening, and he, he uh, was so pleased. He said, stick around here for a second. I want to call the newspaper and have them take your picture. You are the most honest person in town. He says, oh, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> Why not? Well, you see, I'm married, and the woman I'm with is not my wife. Man, dishonesty brings anxiety. You know, we can also trick ourselves into thinking that we're honest folks and we compartment our lives and we're not honest in this area of life, but we're honest in this area of life. 
And what we have done is we've created duplicity, and we're not honest at all. We're not filled with joy at all. Living in the presence of God brings real joy. And Joseph's brothers had finally learned to speak truthfully. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that when we understand the love of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We can be as honest as the day is long. And our Father's love will not run out on us. That ought to make us the most transparent and honest people in the world. For we would have nothing to fear. And so living in truth brings a world of joy and peace. It is a lifestyle which aligns with the holiness of God in his presence. And so what I see in this text is, at the beginning, Jacob is returning to worship the everlasting God and and recognizing his presence in his life. And in the last half, we're seeing him live out that reality by being honest and his brothers as well and and his sons as well. And the reality is, fullness of joy will not ultimately be ours until we're in the very presence of God, like it was for Bunyan's two men who are running to the celestial city. The the fullness of joy that we're looking for will come. But here in this life that we live now, when we admit the presence of God, we can find true joy. When our worship admits that God is very present, and when our lifestyle aligns with God's holy presence, that's when we find fullness of joy. I conclude with Psalm, 1, Psalm 16, verse 11, which says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray.